So today's Bible reading comes from Revelations 19, 11 to 21. The heavenly warrior defeats the beast. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fury lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Well, friends, when it uh, comes to plots for stories or movies, there's a lot of interesting ones around. But in order to make a good story, basically, you need a hero who solves a tricky problem. The tricky problem of a story, it's most usually associated with a bad guy or perhaps a series of bad guys. Now, some of you probably know Batman. In the original Batman TV series, for example, the main hero, well, it's obviously Batman. He was aided by his trusty sidekick, Robin. But what made the TV series interesting was all of the villains that emerged to cause havoc in Gotham City. And the big four villains, you can see them there on the screen. You've got the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler, and we can't forget Catwoman. Now, Batman was always fighting these types of villains. He was always strong enough or smart enough or lucky enough to be able to sufficiently deal with the villains, but he was never able to rid Gotham City of these dastardly criminals completely. On one level, the plotline of the Bible, just like other good stories, follows the pattern of a hero who fights the bad guys and wins. Basically, we've got God as the hero, and Satan as the villain. But there are a couple of important differences from your typical human-authored story to keep in mind. First of all, the story of the Bible isn't fiction. It's not make-believe, but real life. Secondly, even though there are episodes to the story of the Bible, in the end, the hero is going to defeat the villains. And significantly, 
The victory that he's going to win will be comprehensive and complete and eternally so. This is something that the book of Revelation teaches us very clearly. Amidst the catastrophes and plagues and the persecution of God's people, the big question that we've been waiting to resolve as we've been reading through the book of Revelation is, what's going to happen to the bad guys? What's going to happen in the end? Do you remember the villains in the story so far? There's the dragon, the ugly beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and the great prostitute Babylon. These are the big enemies that must be defeated before the kingdom of God can rule over all. Now, we've already seen the fall of Babylon. Babylon symbolizes the capital city of the kingdom of the Antichrist. But in chapter 18, Babylon's pictured as being like a stone that sinks to the bottom of the sea. Babylon's going to be destroyed and its smoke will billow up from its ruins forever. But what about the other villains? What about the beasts and the dragon? What's going to happen to them? Well, to preempt what we're going to see in our passage in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21 today, the two beasts are going to be dealt with. They're going to be captured and destroyed. But before we get to that point, we're introduced first to the hero who's going to defeat the beasts. In fact, we're given a detailed and symbolic description of this hero. He's described for us in verses 11 to 16. Riding forth from heaven on a white horse, where white symbolizes purity, we're given two names of this hero. He's called Faithful and True. These two names suggest that the coming forth of this hero is in order to fulfill God's promise in some way. In addition, we're told that the hero will use righteousness to judge God's enemies and to make war against them. In other words, he's going to do what's right in dealing with those who oppose God. We're also told that his eyes are a fiery flame. This suggests that he's both glorious and perceptive. The many diadems or crowns on his head speak of his importance as a royal figure. He also has another name, a name that's been written down, but strangely perhaps it's a name that no one knows except himself. Now viewed in the light of Isaiah 62.2 and Revelation 2 verse 17, this seems to be a kind of secret regnal name. A regnal name is a new name that a ruler takes at the commencement of his reign as king. The giving of this secret name, therefore, seems to be an acknowledgement by God of the victorious kingly status of the person who receives this secret name. But there's an even more intriguing detail 
given in verse 13. It says the hero is clothed with a garment dipped in blood. And he's also got another name, the word of God. Well, who is this hero, do you reckon? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, particularly with his name being the word of God. That's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? The hero on the white horse is Jesus. And the fact that his garment was dipped in blood, this is best understood as being a reference to the blood that was spilt from his body when he died upon the cross. It's a reminder of the sacrifice that this hero was willing to endure in order to bring salvation to his people. In verse 14, we're told that the armies of angels in heaven were following him. They also were riding on white horses and they were wearing clean white linen. Of course, cleanness and whiteness, these are both symbolic of purity. In verse 15, Jesus is described as having a sharp sword extending from his mouth. This perhaps is a little bit strange, but it's a symbolic picture basically of Jesus' tongue, which is used like a weapon. It's indicating that he's powerful in speech. In fact, we're told that he uses this sword to strike the nations. Jesus' word is powerful, and he uses his word to rule and judge the nations of the world. Alluding to Psalm 2, verse 9, we're told that Jesus will shepherd the nations with an iron scepter. His rule is going to be characterised by strength, not weakness, and he's going to bring judgment down against those who've made God angry. And this explains the image at the end of verse 15 where Jesus is described as treading the winepress of the anger of the wrath of God the Almighty. A winepress is just a place where grapes are squashed in order to make wine. Those with whom God is angry are going to be squashed like grapes in a winepress. And Jesus is the one who's going to be doing the squashing. And just to confirm that the rider on the white horse is Jesus, in verse 16, we see the formal titles that he has upon his garment and his thigh. It records for us that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This pair of titles indicates that Jesus is king over all of the rulers here on earth. There's no earthly ruler who can compare with him for power and majesty. There's an amazing introduction here to the hero. Here we see Jesus, the powerful kingly hero, leading the armies of heaven and coming forth for the final battle. And the expectation is he's going to be victorious. In fact, the impending victory is signalled by an angel standing in the sun who gives a remarkable invitation. 
This angel calls out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high in the sky, Come, be gathered together for the great supper of God, in order that you might eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of the strong and the flesh of horses and those seated upon them and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave and small and great. Notice how the angel already knows that the battle's going to result in slaughter for the enemies of God. Kings, captains, warriors, horses, soldiers, and lots of other people from all echelons of society are going to be killed in this battle. And their fallen bodies will cover the battlefield. There's going to be so many dead bodies that it'll turn into a great banquet for the birds of prey. It's going to be a food fest provided to the birds by none other than God himself. That's why it's called the great supper of God. God won't be doing any eating, but he'll be supplying the food. Verse 19 indicates that the beast, and that's the first beast, the Antichrist, this beast's going to be involved in this battle. In fact, he's going to be joining forces with the kings of the earth and their armies, and they'll gather together to make war against Jesus and his army. And my assumptions that this Battle is the one mentioned back in Revelation 16, verse 16, that's going to take place in Armageddon. The word Armageddon, it comes from the Hebrew place name Har Megiddo. Now, Megiddo was an important city in northern Israel. And I'm not sure, perhaps the next slide might indicate a picture here of Armageddon. The word har in Hebrew, it indicates a hill or a mountain. And you can see it there on the slide, the one back there, Armageddon. Now, har Megiddo, it literally means the hill of Megiddo. Now, we know that the city, it wasn't actually built upon a natural hill, but over time, as the city built up, it formed a mound, or what archaeologists call a tell. Now, actually, back in 2004, I had the opportunity to visit this place, Har Megiddo. The distinctive thing about this ancient city is that to the north and northeast of the city, there's a large, flat expanse of land. It's a natural battleground. And many battles over the years have been fought in that location, including British and Commonwealth forces in World War I. And when I was at Armageddon back in 2004, there's actually something a little bit spooky that I need to tell you about this place. I noticed when I was there a big green street sign on the main road running past Haramigido. And on this street sign, it was indicating that the, that road 
was Route 66. But it also had on that sign an indication saying that Route 66, it eventually joins onto Route number, you want to have a guess? It joins onto Route number six. Now, when you see a street sign with 666 on it at Armageddon of all places, that's what you call spooky. Anyway, the good news is, according to verse 20, a key outcome in this final battle is the capture of the beast. And this beast is the Antichrist. But we also get the capture of the second beast, who's the false prophet, who had done the miraculous signs with the aim of deceiving those who had received the mark of the beast and who had worshipped its image. So we're told that these two beasts, they're going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur. And verse 21 indicates that Jesus will affect the slaughter of many people in that battle and all the birds will eat their fill from the bodies of the slain. Now, friends, in thinking about the image of a battlefield strewn with fallen bodies, it's not a nice thing to think about. But in reality, war is ugly. This is painting a picture for us of what's at stake in this life and death struggle between God and Satan. There'll be ups and downs, but in the end, the hero Jesus is going to be victorious. Jesus is going to defeat the Antichrist and the forces of evil. The beasts are going down. All in all, this passage, it assures us that the enemies of God's people are going to be defeated. But please notice how the focus overall in this passage is not actually on the beasts, but it's on the hero, Jesus. Jesus is the conquering commander of the armies of heaven. He's the pure and powerful word of God. And this passage assures us he will be victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that going through the book of Revelation, we have seen lots of ups and downs. We have seen catastrophes and plagues. We've seen the persecution of your people. We've seen basically death and destruction. And it makes us wonder, where is this world headed? And what is going to happen in the end? Well, we thank you, Lord, that today we've been able to see a passage which speaks to us quite clearly that the Antichrist and his allies are going to be defeated. 
We thank you that the victory belongs to you. And we thank you for reminding us today of the hero who is going to win the final victory. That hero is Jesus, the commander of the forces of heaven, the pure and powerful word of God who will rule the nations and establish the kingdom of God. Lord, in the ups and downs of our own personal lives and the ups and downs of life here in this world, and we've seen many downs over the last year and the cycle is seeming to continue even into this new year. We often don't know where things are headed and what will be around the corner. But we thank you, Lord, for this picture that you've given us today of the victory of Jesus over the Antichrist. We pray that whatever it is that we may be encountering in our own life, whatever the concerns and worries that we might have, that you would help us always to have this picture of the victory of Jesus in our minds. Jesus, the word of God, victorious. We thank you for his victory on the cross and we look forward to the full and final victory over the forces of evil when he returns. We thank you in the name of this powerful, victorious word of God, the lamb who was slain, the king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. First question, who makes up the army in verse 19? So, so verse 19 of chapter 19? Yes. Who makes up the army? Yeah, so the idea, I think, seems to be that the Antichrist is a kind of political figure. So he's going to be ruling at a particular location on earth. But just like what we get today, you get blocks of countries, right, which will support each other. You get allies. Um, in the time of the Cold War, we had the Soviet Union and the countries around the Soviet Union versus the free world that we called it, like Europe and America. So a similar thing is going to happen there, I think. Uh, the Antichrist is going to be ruling. He'll be strong. And so there'll be countries that will, in a sense, submit themselves to the Antichrist, and work together with him. So it seems like that lots of the kings of the earth here, so it seems to be an indication that a lot of the countries of the world are actually going to join forces together with the Antichrist for some kind of battle. Now, the question is here, is this battle a physical battle that's going to take place? I tend to think it probably is, but obviously it could be just a picture of what's going to happen on the spiritual realm. But I think that when we've got a picture of Jesus returning, you've got the armies of heaven, so the angels are involved somehow there. But uh, the Antichrist seems to be a physical type figure, like a king, an analogy with Emperor Nero or Antiochus IV, who was a Greek king back in the time of the Old Testament. So all of this indicates we've probably got some kind of physical war that is going to happen. Okay, right.
take the mark of the beast. If, for example, if it's physical or literal. So can you just say that one again? You're breaking up again a little bit there. Uh, so, What should God's people be looking for so that we are not drawn to take the mark of the beast? Okay, well, I basically just think as, as God's people, we've got to stick close to Jesus and his teaching. All right, so an important thing for us to do is to make sure that we're reading the Bible or the teaching that we're getting is coming from the Bible. So in order to be able to assess, you know, the teaching that we're getting, is it coming from the Bible? Then you need to also pay attention, I guess, to the sermons that are being given and to compare what's being said with what's there actually in the text. Okay. So an important role that we have as individuals and also as a church is to make sure that we're following the teaching of Scripture And part of that is also making sure that our leaders, our leaders in the church are people who teach the Bible as well. And the key is not just to teach parts of the Bible, but to teach, in a sense, all of the Bible. So in other words, it's very easy uh, for some people to just emphasise particular truths that are in the Bible, but they forget all the other truths that are there as well, and so their teaching becomes unbalanced. So you need to make sure that what you're understanding about God and his plan and what you're hearing and what our leaders are teaching us that all of this is reflecting the balance that we get in scripture. So as long as we're doing that, I think we'll be protected, we'll be safe, we'll be able to identify who the Antichrist is when he comes. And so sticking close to the word of God as written in the Bible, in a sense, that's like a protective barrier that's going to make sure we won't be tempted. You know, when the Antichrist comes and the second beast, remember his role is to deceive people to worship the first beast. Well, when that all happens, if we're sticking close to scripture, we'll be able to identify all of that. We'll know it when it occurs. And so we won't be tempted to follow the crowd and worship the beast. Yeah, fair enough. Um, next question. Uh, why is the name given to Jesus secret? Yeah, it's interesting, this one, Uh, but it's also something not just given to Jesus. So I did mention that in Revelation 2.17, I think it was, if you look in Revelation 2.17, there's also a promise given to those who overcome or those who conquer, which is interesting, isn't it? I will give some of the hidden manna, And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so this is something that's promised to the people of God generally as well. But as we overcome temptation, as we overcome opposition and persecution, then there's going to be, in a sense, a kind of reward for us. And it's pictured here in terms of manna, the white stone, is from the Urim and the Thummim, which was a kind of, um, it's kind of uh, a bit like tossing a coin that they used. It was a black and white stone. And these things were placed in, in the Ark of the Covenant back in the time of the Old Testament. And so it's interesting that this white name, uh, sorry, this, this white stone and this new name uh, are linked together there. The white stone is the positive, okay? So it's like, yes. So it's a picture of being chosen, really, by God. So those who overcome and who conquer, 
uh, are chosen by God and will be privileged with a new name. And so it's this kind of what I described in the sermon as a regnal name. So it's like the name that a king takes upon himself when he starts his rule. And most of the time this regnal name will be a name that everyone knows about. It's a public name. But here the idea is that it's uh, a secret name, which is interesting. It seems to indicate that this is something just between God and that person, this kind of special privilege. And so something that applies to the people of God as a whole, to those who overcome in Chapter 2 there, we see that also applying to Jesus here. Okay, But basically what it is, it's a picture of him as a conquering king and a privileged one, special in God's eyes. Um, now, an interesting question. Is the Supper of God in this passage the same as the Supper we invited to in the passage last week? Yeah, it's interesting that. I, I tend to think they're probably the same thing. Uh, if you think about it, what we have here, we, we get the villains being dealt with, in a sense, one by one. So you get Babylon being dealt with, then you get the two beasts being dealt with, and then, well, the expectation is who's the only villain left now? It's going to be the dragon, right? We have to wait and see what's going to happen to the dragon. John will probably tell us more about that next week. But in reality, I'm assuming all of these things probably match up, all right? So the fall of Babylon is associated with the defeat of Antichrist, okay? So if there's a kind of supper at that point, in a way these things are going to be taking place at the same time. Uh, I don't think the idea is, though, that we're going to be eating the flesh of dead people or anything like that. That's more for the birds to do. But as that takes place, as there's this defeat, there's also this celebration, this wedding banquet. When Jesus returns after he's conquered finally, then he is presented to his people, okay? So there's this feast and banquet. So they might not be exactly the same thing, but pretty much they're happening close in time to each other. All right. Okay. Um, now, next question. If we have this uh, 666 mark embedded into us, will it be too late to ask for forgiveness? Okay, the, the 666, the mark there seems to be it's either some kind of branding or it could even be a kind of uh, official document. Uh, if you look at the word that's used for mark in the Greek when that's talked about here in Revelation, it is something which can be used of just like a kind of uh, pass, you know, an official pass to be able to do something. It can also be a mark that is on someone's body, like a kind of tattoo or something like that. So the, the 666, I, I think it's not just a matter of, oh, I've been stamped with that, no hope for me now. It's not like that. Um, the 666 is more talking about an attitude, right? It's an attitude whether you're worshipping the beast or whether you're following Jesus. And so, I don't know, it could perhaps be that some people initially are tempted to follow the beast but then are converted and turn back to Jesus. That could possibly happen, I guess. Um, but the expectation is that in the book of Revelation here, you know, the, the hope that is held out is the people of God will stay, stay fast and understand and that they won't be deceived, okay? So I don't think we should be worried, oh, somehow, you know, I'm going to be ejected with something, I'll have 666 within me and then, you know, I've got no hope whatsoever. It's, it's not like that, right? It, it's more what is my attitude 
to Jesus? Am I following him? Am I worshipping him? Or am I being tempted to go down the opposite pathway, in a sense, to worship the beast and to follow Satan? Okay? So as long as you're following Jesus, you know, even if you're a follower of Jesus and they physically want to stamp 666 on you, you're still going to be okay, right? Because you're a follower of Jesus. Fair enough. Um, Can you explain more of the links of Armageddon to this passage? Yes, so Armageddon's only mentioned in the book of Revelation once. And in fact, the the phrase Armageddon, all right, this this, um, Armageddon, only occurs in the Bible once, I think. Uh, Megiddo, Megiddo as a city, is actually mentioned a number of times in in the Old Testament. So normally it was just called Megiddo, which is like Mageddon, I guess. Uh, the R on the front is, as I said, from the Hebrew word Har, which means hill or mountain. So in 1616, we're, we're told about how the kings of the whole world, they're going to go out to fight God effectively on a place of battle. Um, So it says they're going to assemble for a battle on the great day of God the Almighty and that the place name is uh, called Armageddon. So my assumption is that this final battle, which is being talked about here in Chapter 19, it was hinted at back in Chapter 16. Okay, so I think that's the the connection here. In other words, there's going to be a final attempt on the part of the forces of evil to take control of the world. Remember, the the battle zone really is planet Earth, and so Satan's wanting to take control of planet Earth. Jesus has come to push back Satan's control over the world, but Jesus has come to take back control for God. And so as those two forces, you know, these two opposing forces bump into each other. There's going to be a final struggle, which seems to involve some kind of physical battle. Okay, and that's what we've uh, looked at in our passage today. Um, before we get to the final question, is there any questions on Zoom? No? Okay. Actually, I should just say that I'm, I'm assuming this battle will be wide-ranging, but it'll probably involve the nation of Israel somehow, and that's why Armageddon is mentioned here. But it is a natural battleground, and I read somewhere where some people calculate maybe 34 or 35 different battles of, over history, you know, throughout history have taken place in, in Armageddon. In fact, one of the famous battles was King Josiah. He went out to meet an Egyptian pharaoh, and Josiah actually died on the battlefield in Armageddon. And I mentioned how in 1918 there were Commonwealth and British forces also fighting uh, the Turks and the Germans, and they also fought around this area as well. And uh, there were Australian soldiers involved as well, which is interesting from an Australian point of view. Oh, very interesting. Uh, yeah. Do, I, do you want to get a microphone? Give me a second. Oh. Up to you. Yeah. Hello, Reverend Coxon. This is Andrew Woon. Uh, I go to the Chinese uh, community. Uh, uh, yes. I just want to ask you, regarding the promise that to Abraham, through your descendants in Genesis, will all the families of the earth be, be blessed? 
uh, does that necessarily mean the Jews or the spiritual Jews like us here? Can you elaborate? I think all the families of the earth means basically people of different nationalities, right? So, in other words, there's this picture of the gospel going out to the nations. That's going to involve people of different people groups, but also the Jews are going to be converted. There's this expectation in the New Testament that in the lead-up to the end times, there's going to be a greater response on the part of the Jewish people to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. So I think that promise of uh, Abraham, you know, that promise that God gave to Abraham, it's, it's initially understood on a spiritual level, right, those who are linked into Christ as the seed of God, right? Now, Paul talks about how this promise ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus, but if you're a believer in Jesus, and that can include anyone of any nationality, including Jewish people, right, then that promise also applies to them. So, in effect, it covers everyone, including Jewish people. Thank you. Uh, other questions from the crowd here? Or got the mic out? No? Otherwise, I'll tackle this last question. All right. Um, so in regards to Babylon, uh, will it be where the beast arises or are we talking about the Old Testament Babylon? Could you explain about that? Okay, with Babylon, yeah, what we were saying is that Babylon in the Old Testament is pictured as being the ultimate enemy of the people of God. Remember how Babylon physically came in in the time of the Old Testament to destroy Jerusalem and take many of the Jews off into exile. So since that point in time, Babylon, you know, it's a nasty name. It brings up all these images of defeat and destruction to the Jewish people. Uh, so Babylon becomes a symbol of the enemies of God's people. But then here in the book of Revelation, I think Babylon's applied to Rome, really. Um, the idea is, I think, as John, remember, he's been arrested. He's part of the Roman Empire. You know, they're persecuting him and the Christians as well at that time. Then he he views Rome, the Roman Empire, as being like the embodiment of the spirit of Babylon of old. Okay, and then he uses that as a picture of the ultimate opposition to God, which is going to come with the Antichrist. So in other words, when the Antichrist comes along, he's going to be something like the Roman emperors in the Roman Empire, what they did to the Christians. It's going to be something like maybe what Babylon did to the Jews as well. Okay, so as Babylon starts off as a physical location, a physical nation that attacks the Israelites, but then it becomes a symbol of enemies of the people of God. It gets applied to Rome, and it doesn't just get applied to Rome here in the book of Revelation. There's also in, I think it's First Peter, that might mention Babylon as well, which is a kind of code for Rome. And then it also then is used as a symbol of the ultimate rebellion against God. And so Babylon effectively here in the book of Revelation, you can take it as being the capital city of the kingdom of Antichrist. Okay. So in a sense, Babylon stands for the kingdom of Antichrist. Okay. Hopefully that explains it. It's a little bit tricky. <laughs> That's okay. Thanks for having me today. And, uh, I think it was supposed to be John until something happened at his work. So make sure you've got lots of questions for John next week because uh, I'm just filling in for him here. Okay.
Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you for that.